Welcome to the Battleground Wisconsin. My name is Matt Brusky. I'm the Deputy Director here at Citizen Action, and welcome to another week from Wisconsin. Rebecca Lynch is back. It's very exciting. Rebecca is back from New York. We are really excited to have her back on the show. Rebecca is with the Wisconsin Working Families Party. Rebecca, great to have you back. Good to be here, Matt. And our other two panelists are with us, which means Claire Zawki is with us. Claire is our healthcare director here at Citizen Action. Claire, good to see you. Thanks. Good to see you, too. And Robert Craig, executive director, is with us. Robert, good to have you. Good day, everyone. Happy New Year. Happy New Year, folks. So uh, it has not been a particularly happy week, obviously, we uh, since we recorded the previous, uh, the first podcast, first battleground of the uh, year, the Iran situation flared up. And so we are going to spend the first segment talking about that. Um, we also have news around the Affordable Care Act, Obamacare, uh, a report coming out that Claire's going to uh, lead the conversation on. We have updates on the voter purge we've been talking about every week, basically since the end of last year. Um, also some news about a uh, criminal justice reform package that uh, Governor Evers and Democratic lawmakers introduced this week. We may have some time. We'll see. We may talk some spring elections, talk elections. And we'll also be joined by Joanna Botch with us, who is the new movement politics director here at Citizen Action. And we're really excited to talk to her about some of the really um, important work that we've talked about in the past about trying to find and recruit people to run for office and support their efforts. Uh, and people who will really run on a bold agenda. So we're really looking forward to talking with Joanna. So folks uh, want to have a conversation about what's been going on with Iran. And it, it's, it is Iran versus America, I guess, if you had to say. But quite frankly, this is really Trump, right? I mean, Trump is driving all of this, although it appears the Republicans are um, fairly aligned, although we, I want to immediately move to conversation and comment from Robert and Rebecca to start. Um, the latest news is, as of Wednesday, um, President and the executive branch presented their information to Congress about um, supposedly an imminent threat, why it happened, and there appears to, it was fairly a disaster, uh, including uh, not only all the Democrats pretty much saying that, but um, a couple of Republicans. Rand Paul, which is expected given his position, but also now Mike Lee has come out and said this was the worst uh, briefing ever. Uh, Rebecca, welcome back. Uh, no small business to talk about. Your thoughts on this? You know, this is a developing story, and so between Thursday morning when we tape this and when the podcast airs, there might be some significant changes. But Excellent point. Yeah, I, you know, there's there's a couple different tracks of, of things happening right now. Obviously, folks are protesting throughout the country today um, and have been speaking out um, in social media, in person, calling their members of Congress. Last night, there was a mass call that a number of organizations participated in, including us and Move On. Um, where Senators Elizabeth Warren and Bernie Sanders, along with other members of Congress, spoke about what was happening and kind of galvanized people to to oppose the march towards war with Iran. Um, in addition to that, you know, there's a real push not only to say no war, but to go farther and to have Congress invoke the War Powers Act to stop Trump from being able to declare war unilaterally, which seems like a no-brainer and, and folks should really do. Um, 
And so I don't know, it's a really like um, deja vu kind of time for yeah. a lot of folks, certainly members of Congress. We saw with that briefing and even yeah. before they were like, hey, we remember Iraq. And those were manufactured reasons for war. And that's not easily forgotten. I think that, you know, a lot of activists feel that way, too. I think what's interesting about this compared to that is, you know, we've got now this dynamic presidential primary happening while where this march towards war is escalating. And uh, among the front runners in the race are like, e everyone is, is calling foul on the war, but in particular yeah. two really anti-war folks and obviously chief among them is Senator Bernie Sanders who invokes this history of being you know, anti-Vietnam um, and peace activist his whole life. And then you have Senator Elizabeth Warren whose family served in the military and she often invokes that experience to, to say we can't just rush into war because of the lives of military folks at stake. So that's kind of my where my head is at on all this stuff. I don't know. What are you thinking, Robert? Well, look, this is an acceleration of the imperial presidency, which is a concept. I mean, really, since the Cold War, presidential powers contra the Constitution have been increasing, and Congress's role in war making has decreased. And even the Pentagon doesn't necessarily like that because when you have public support for a war, it's a lot harder to fight. Uh, see Vietnam, right? See Afghanistan. And so it's really hard this, not to see uh, this, this is entirely political. Uh, the administration cannot provide, it claims that there was an imminent threat, cannot provide, and no one who is fair-minded, so Glenn Grothman doesn't count, has thought that any of the evidence presented showed an imminent threat. Plus, this is the most untruthful administration in history, which is saying something, because, you know, we, we, we haven't had, I cannot tell a lie, I, I chopped down that uh, cherry tree in American politics sometime, but this is like, I cannot tell a truth, right, this kind of administration. So they have zero credibility except for people who adore Donald Trump and his base. And quite frankly, you can't, you can't forget about the fact that this is happening. Uh, during impeachment process, and also that Trump himself claimed that Obama would attack Iran in 2012 because he needed it to get reelected. So we know Trump's mind already wired that way, that if I become a wartime president, then that's all good. And this has evoked such a backlash that we're, we're a couple votes away in the U.S. Senate from them banning him from taking any war actions against Iran without congressional approval. You already have two Republican senators supporting it, and it will pass the House. So one more sort of broader context that it's operating within, there has been a movement that really broke publicly this week of both conservative and liberal veterans of the Iraq and Afghanistan war. So that's quite frankly now of almost, geez, you know, over well over a decade, right? It's over 60% support, and it's across political spectrum against the endless war that has been going on. And this is occurring within it. And again, you brought it up, right? This whole idea that how that war was started. And so there's a lot of suspicion. And this is a very different America that I think, you know, than what happened in the past. I hope. I hope the Republicans, though, and I would do want to quick back, still fairly lockstep. Mike Lee is the only one that I'm aware of. As of Thursday, hopefully more will come out that are kind of like, whoa, this is like has long term separation of powers uh, critical uh, at stake here. They've and been more. They've been more um, independent on foreign policy. They did rebuke him on, you know, literally betraying the Kurds 
and letting the Turks come in, yeah. right? And so there's mo more history of independence on foreign policy. Obviously, American public pays less attention usually to foreign policy, so you can get away with it more uh, with, with Trump's base. But I just want to say that this is so embarrassing that, I mean, for the country, it's, it's completely humiliating. Uh, we have ripped up all the rules of, of law, right? You cannot just go and execute a member, I, 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 you know, a high-ranking official in another government because you yourself, with no international process, have deemed him a terrorist. And no one else can deem anyone a terrorist. Otherwise, Dick Cheney would be deemed, deemed as a terrorist, quite frankly, uh, based on what happened in the, in the Iraq War. Uh, but look, the clerics that run Iran are looking reasonable compared to us, right? They literally had a response for their public, because we've unified the, the Iranian public. They were facing serious domestic unrest. They had murdered 1,000 people to control, keep control of the country. Now the country is unified because of, of what we've done. But furthermore, they're the ones who told the Iraqis we're going to lob some bombs into these, into these bases before they did it so there'd be no casualties. So, but they could please their public. So they're acting rationally. We're now the rogue nation. Claire, I want to give you an opportunity for some also additional thoughts on this. Uh, as this conversation um, is, is really interesting, and um, I think it's natural to talk about what this means for our international relations and what this means for our global society, um, but I think often overshadowed in this conversation is what it means for Iranian Americans here in the United States. And um, a friend of mine, Mitra Jalali, um, who um, I um, met when we were in the Frontline Leaders Academy, a project of People for the American Way together a number of years ago, is now um, an older person in St. Paul, Minnesota, and she published an op-ed that ran in The Guardian um, that, that I think is really powerful um, because the point of, of her op-ed is that um, you know, it's really easy to distill what is happening with the U.S.-Iranian relationships into, um, uh, you know, derisive tweets and and to use it as another example of, oh, you know, Trump is just the worst. And yep. and yep. Um, but but really it has um, meaningful, uh, a meaningful effect on Iranian Americans here in the United States and is um, just another example of um, of. Um, challenges that they face as um, people who have uh, both American cultures and Iranian cultures. Um, and so in, in her op-ed, um, Mitra says that um, childhood me didn't know that in my lifetime I'd face a Muslim travel ban, yeah. battle Iranian family separation, watch a historic Iran deal be created that was decades in the making, then be reneged on by the U.S. one administration later. Um, but that, like many people of her generation who face these challenges, um, second-generation Persian kids, um, that they took the, in her words, haze of Islamophobia and latent white nationalism that came to hang over our lives and did something with it. Um, so she talks about how people of her generation became organizers and activists, um, political candidates like herself who ran for office. Um, and so I, I think it's worth uh, talking about what this means for, for real folks like Mitra and her family and to lift up um, their, their struggles and say that we should be supporting them as well in this. That is excellent. And with that, though, we have to take a break. We are going to stay on this. And actually, Robert, you mentioned uh, the connection that this is all happening with impeachment. want to just get some additional comments on that. After the break, you're listening to The Battleground Wisconsin, where Citizen Action, you can find us at citizenactionwi.org. 
Welcome back to the Battleground Wisconsin. We're Citizen Action. We're talking about the situation in Iraq, um, and Claire has also rightly pointed out that that situation bleeds over into our country and how any time we have heightened hostilities like this, it only increases uh, the challenges for folks in our own communities around uh, heightened relations where people uh, start to act irrationally, quite frankly, a lot of uh, Americans. But Robert, you also mentioned, and I wanted to get your comments before we move to the next topic, around the, the fact that this is all occurring within impeachment and there was some news that happened this week on impeachment that's very important as it relates to the Senate. Well, in the midst of all the hoopla around Iran and justifiable hoopla, to be quite frankly, Frank, uh, McConnell has uh, now said he has the votes to proceed um, with a, a Republican-only process, and he's saying he's going to proceed as they did in the Clinton impeachment and therefore decide on witnesses later. you got to remember with the Clinton impeachment, there was a special prosecutor who had interviewed everyone and put it on the record, and there were the key witnesses were also all interviewed in the impeachment, in the House part of the impeachment um, for that Th process. Thanks for the facts, Robert. Those are going to yeah. be very important in this yes, process. Yes, you're, you're right. So, but Nancy Pelosi has still not delivered the papers to the Senate, and she was captured by journalists walking through the Capitol quickly yesterday late afternoon, and she indicated she is not going to until she knows exactly how this process will work and 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 they do not have that information. And so they're fulminating in the Senate over this and among Republicans. But here's the thing. There, while there's an imbalance as how much executive power Donald Trump has to go and assassinate a foreign leader or simply to tell all of his, his folks and uh, not to testify and to withhold all the documents from an impeachment, right? It, all, you know, in violation of all past precedent. But there's a gap between Trump and McConnell and, and Pelosi in terms of Pelosi's political smarts. She is one of the great political strategists, our first women speaker, and she is playing a brilliant game to delay this out because it seems every day there are new revelations leaking out that, that, uh, that make an even stronger case for an impeachment. Now, I agree with your cynicism, Matt. There seems to be nothing that could, uh, including murdering someone on the streets of New York, that could move the Trump base or Republican senators who are terrified of the Trump base. But this does get worse and worse for him. And it's really difficult for them now that uh, Bolton, who obviously has firsthand knowledge and, 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 and has said he will testify if subpoenaed, and they're going to ignore this evidence and just move forward without any, any process whatsoever and then claim that there isn't firsthand information, which has been denied, all been denied by the president and, and kept from the investigation. So I believe this will not be the last time we're going to talk about this, but uh, we do have a unique role on the show to talk about things, um, not only healthcare but also here in Wisconsin. And before we get into some um, Wisconsin news, Claire, I wanted to have you at least lead us with the conversation, but obviously um, get other panel uh, comment if we could. There was a report that came out this Monday, early this week, from the Kaiser Family Foundation, which is the leading sort of healthcare research and policy and act, you know, uh, analysis uh, there is in the country. Um, their report really tried to look at what's happened in, uh, I believe it was a nine month period, uh, when essentially Obamacare market, when it, when insure, when we repealed the mandate, 
the idea that uh, folks were going to be not only penalized uh, financially, but also now that they even have to have it. But they found that the market's been stable, and there was a lot of concern, legitimate concern, that without... Uh, the individual mandate and the financial penalties that these markets, a lot of folks would exit. But apparently they've been stable, they've been profitable, um, and I want to first just talk about the facts and at least what's come out, but then I want to have a conversation what this means towards the broader um, fight for Medicare for All and just how we make improvements and why this is going to continue to be a top issue in the election. Claire? So let's let's start with some basics, which is that um, so we all know that the Affordable Care Act is being litigated in federal courts right now. um, And a lot of this has to do with the individual mandate. So um, the the Court of Appeals um, in the in the circuit court out of Texas um, did just find the individual uh, mandate to be unconstitutional or is, is looking like it's trending that way. Um, but yeah. the, what allowed them to um, to make that decision was the Trump administration's decision to uh, stop enforcing the penalties of the individual mandate, um, which means that it, it couldn't really be called a tax anymore, which was the U.S. Supreme Court's original um, reason for uh, upholding the constitutionality. Well, just John Roberts, well, but yes. Okay. <laughs> um, a really important part yeah. of that decision. <laughs> the swing vote. Vote, the yeah. one swing vote. Yeah. Claire, yeah. I can just tell him to stop talking. Keep going. No, I'm just kidding. Well, <laughs> well, <laughs> yeah. Robert, I, I The only reason I interject is because this is a bogus legal argument yeah. being pushed by right-wing <laughs> judges, and it's all based on the weird decision Roberts made to politically decide to keep the law but to create his own bizarre, without-precedent opinion. But anyway, but nonetheless, Claire is totally accurate, but she's. I just want to make it clear how ridiculous this whole thing is. Yeah, I just wanted to uh, to give that history because um, I think it could be confusing for somebody who doesn't live and breathe this stuff to say, um, hey, how come I just heard about the individual mandate going away a few weeks ago and now you're going to be talking about a year without the individual mandate, right? Um, yep. So so that's, that's why we have that sort of nuance there. Um, and so there, to be clear, there's a few ways that um, you could theoretically claim that the individual marketplace um, was failing, right? So one of them would be if insurance companies were, well, I don't really as much care, but they care if they're not profitable, um, right? Um, well, they get to leave, and then it and then the market collapses. Yes, right. Yeah. So if, if it's not profitable for, for insurance companies to be in the marketplace, um, it could be an indication of their failure if folks were all of a sudden uh, jumping ship and not... Um, getting insurance at all through the marketplace, um, or if the, the costs of uh, being in the marketplace were um, significantly, significantly higher than they had been um, in the past. And it turns out that none of those things happened a year after um, the, the penalties and therefore functionally the individual mandate went away and we went through a full year of enrollment. <clears throat> um, and so it turns out, though, um, that... Um, premiums did increase only slightly. Um, we didn't see huge increases in premiums, um, such as happened right off the bat with the ACA when um, insurers were getting used to the sort of brave new world of the marketplace where they had to insure people uh, with um, you know, pre-existing conditions, right? They just didn't know what the market would bear. Um, so we saw only moderate increases. Um, enrollment, it shrinks, but only slightly and and not in any significant difference um, from the rate that enrollment was shrinking in previous years when there was an individual mandate. And the Kaiser report goes on to explain that shrinking in enrollment by saying that um, the issue here is middle class and middle income folks who don't have employer-based insurance and need to buy it 
um, on the marketplace, um, but who have incomes that are too high for the federal subsidies. So enrollment is not declining for people who receive the federal subsidies, it's declining for folks who don't. And, and that I think is a common, a common thread that we see across a lot of healthcare stories, right? Yep. We, see, we see that same um, group of folks suffering in Wisconsin because we didn't expand Badger Care. Um, and, and we, you know, when we talked about the um, Kaiser report, where we talked about the um, increasing rates of uninsured in children, again, it's the same, it's the same pocket of folks um, yeah. because, oh. because they're, they're priced out of the individual market. And so, um, and so to lead into your comments, uh, sort of before, um, you know, this is an example of why, um, you know, the Affordable Care Act is important and the marketplace are important and they're worth protecting because they're extending significant protections and coverage to people who didn't have them and couldn't afford them before. But it's an only an incremental reform. It's not our end goal because the profit motive is still present in this system and therefore um, pricing people out of having health coverage. I talked to somebody just the other day and then I'm going to go to the rest of the panel who basically broke their arm and w with consultation with the doctor who saw them, realized that because they didn't have insurance and fit into exactly that market, told me they chose not to get health care. Uh, basically healed a <laughs> broken arm, you know, without casting it or doing anything or having the surgeries to put the pins in. Just couldn't move it at all for two months, which means didn't work for two months. Mm -hmm. It's a brilliant economic decision that the uh, current market provides. Uh, Robert, I'm going to go to you first because I know you're chomping at the bit. We will talk more on the other end to go further. Robert, your immediate thoughts. Well, just first on, on the legal aspects, look, if you believe that uh, the federal power government doesn't have the power of the Affordable Care Act, then you actually believe that doesn't have the power to function as a 21st century government, okay? So these are legal arguments, which are political arguments in the, in, in, in the robes of, of legal arguments, okay? So people shouldn't worry about, you know, the, the, the various questions here. It's a straight-out naked political play. Now, we also, and I'll say this for the break, need to understand that the Affordable Care Act's been under attack by the Republican Congress under Obama and now by, by, the, by Republicans in Congress and by Trump, and they've tried to sabotage it in every which way, despite being rebuked by the voters when they tried to frontally repeal it. And the reason is, is that they hate it so much. They hate the idea that our democracy would try to make health care affordable for average people, especially low-income people, that they're willing to actually take people's health care away and sabotage, you know, basically violate their oaths of office, okay, by finding every which way to sabotage. And what's amazing is, in this report is, the sabotage hasn't worked so far, but it is having some effect we can talk about at the other end, as Claire was talking about. But the idea was, the reason you couldn't buy uh, good insurance before was because literally only sick people would sign up for the highly priced insurance and healthier people wouldn't, and then it would be too expensive. And it's a death spiral, but it hasn't happened, and the Affordable Care Act has held on. But don't pretend that another term of Trump might not uh, actually cause this death spiral. We can talk about the uh, at that after the break. Then. Very good. We're going to take a break. You're listening to the Battleground Wisconsin, where Citizen Action can find us at citizenactionwi.org. Welcome back to the Battleground Wisconsin. We're talking about the new report that came out that showed uh, despite all the sabotage efforts, we, you know, one of those also being the idea that enrollment and publicizing enrollment has been cut in a lot of places, not supported by Trump. Uh, despite all of that, 
uh, the, the, the uh, exchange remains fairly strong and stable. So, uh, Rebecca, you haven't had a chance. I want to make sure you get some comments uh, on this report. Yeah, I mean, I, I'm always, when I'm on the pod and we're talking about healthcare, more learning than anything. And this is super fascinating to me. I, I wonder, you know, as we kind of move forward in this new reality where they've, you know, in the past repealed the penalties and now maybe the mandate altogether. Obviously, you know, the North Star is a public option, but looking ahead to the next year, at least, right? You know, we still have a term presidency unless he's impeached or something else unusual happens between now and the end of 2020. Do you foresee this remaining relatively stable? And if you do, like, what do you attribute that to? Is it is it the fact that folks have signed up and they signed up and they like it and so they're keeping it? Or well, what are your thoughts on that? Uh, I said this when we were uh, first talking about the court case, but um, my I always have a fear that um, people will see a headline that says something like ACA is ruled unconstitutional and assume that that means that um, their health care is gone or that an insurance company can take away their health care or um, that something like, and thank goodness this didn't happen, but that um, those headlines would come out during the enrollment period and people will, you know, because they're busy <laughs> and we live in a society where we have short attention spans, um, um, not do any further research and realize that that they can still enroll. Um, and so I'm, I'm always concerned about something like that happening. Um, but in general, um, I think once people have um, insurance and once something like the marketplace is, is put in effect, it's hard to take it away. It doesn't mean that I don't think Republicans will continue to try. Um, but I, I am hopeful um, that, that, that now that folks see the value um, and, and have affordable insurance, that they, that they will continue to pursue having it. Now, of course, if the subsidies go away, then that's a huge that's a huge game changer. And then it's sort of all, in my in my mind, I, I think I wouldn't know what to expect in that situation to be scary. Look, it's still in decline. OK, to quote from the Kaiser report that we're talking about, instead of an implosion, the individual market continues to go through a soft attrition. Premiums continue to increase, but only slightly, and enrollment is shrinking, again, slightly. It's not a death spiral, but the market is slowly being winnowed to a core customer base. And talking to, I was talking to a, uh, an insurance agent who is a nonprofit person who mostly does enrollment. This was the worst open enrollment ever. It was extremely difficult. She almost wants to quit and not do this work anymore, despite it's important. So the, the level of sabotage is not just the individual mandate. They just legalized junk insurance plans, which will fool people with a lower premium into buying something that's not even real insurance and doesn't cover all the essential benefits, for example. So there are just tons and tons of sabotage going on, and it's going to continue because they not just Trump, we understand the whole conservative movement has tried to do this and continues to do this despite being rebuked by the public. They would rather get their way than people have access to a fundamental human right that is health care, and people need to understand that. And you know, they're hoping people say, oh, it's unconstitutional if we have such a U.S. Supreme Court decision. It's too bad it, that it violated the great covenant and standards that the founders set up when it's nothing of the sort. It's a creation of right-wing politicians in robes. So Obviously, one of the most important things is this report, I think, reveals in just our lived experience as organizers working on this issue. We know this issue is not going away. It is continues to be white hot. It's why Medicare for All gets so much traction 
uh, in this election and why we have at least two candidates, you know, basically fully embracing it and having close to 50 percent of the Democratic uh, 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 primary voters supporting them. Right. Um, And we have almost every other candidate or at least a lot of them running with decent public option bills, things that would start to hopefully continue to invest back in a system, if not go all the way to a fully public system. This issue is not going away because people's lived experience dealing with these insurance companies. Um, So, Rebecca, back to you for the final wrap-up on this. Do you have anything uh, you want to add as it relates to looking forward? Okay, so with that, though, um, we want to. I want to give an opportunity to give any of uh, any of uh, the panelists an opportunity to talk about anything else related to the presidential primary or anything coming up that strikes you as critical that you've seen. Since we really haven't had a chance to talk about this much uh, since the end of last year, and Rebecca, we haven't had a chance to talk to you in a while. Your thoughts? We have a, we have at least five minutes. Yeah, I just in the last week alone, there's been a lot of non-Iran news. Um, you know, the the big thing today is that the Sunrise Movement, the youth climate activist movement, has announced that it's endorsing Senator Bernie Sanders, which is super exciting. Um, obviously, you know, I work with the Working Families Party. You've endorsed Elizabeth Warren. So in our little corner of the world, we're still super psyched this week about uh, Julian Castro, who is no longer running for president, Secretary Julian Castro, and very shortly after you know retiring his campaign endorsed senator elizabeth warren and castro and warren just had a huge rally um the other night in in brooklyn um and he's going on the trail in iowa and is like not just endorsing but like very heavily campaigning so we're we're hopeful that's gonna give her some momentum and super excited about it what i what i think super exciting and we've talked about how great julian was in uh the primary and how he one did extremely well both in the people's action process but i just think in impressing people um he does get responsible for probably knocking beto out of the election and pointing out like some serious flaws there um i think what's really important is in my mind it's a clear way of saying another candidate actually lying in with and aligning with the two what i would describe as fairly significant change presidential candidates and that's exciting whether you're for sanders or warren and I say that to cha- also let Sanders supporters know, right? Like, like they got to see the differences between those two candidates and a lot of the others, and that's a, that is important. That's movement from an establishment candidate to somebody who's definitely aligning more with progressive or on the left. Robert or Claire. Uh, one of the things I said uh, last time we talked um, about uh, Julian Castro retiring his campaign is that I appreciated that he was authentically himself and that that authentic self was a, uh, a caring um, person who genuine, genuinely was invested in the community. Um, and, and I just think that him endorsing so wholeheartedly Senator Warren um, and not just you know putting it out there and then going away is an example of that um i I think he he always puts a lot of action behind things that he says and so he could just have a rally and then you know go home and and hang out with his family but instead he's hitting the campaign trail and fighting for he's not stopping fighting for what he believes in and doing what he thinks is best for the community um and no matter where you land on um, this uh you know on any of these political candidates um i i hope that we can acknowledge that 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 deserves a lot of respect. Robert, your thoughts? Well, look, we've had a potentially an important change in the election. We'll see. It's possible that uh, the Iran scare is going to be just that, and we'll go back to usual Trumpian foreign policy. Uh, 
given that the Iranians have actually stood down, not Trump, right? Uh, but we've just put foreign policy onto the agenda, and that's very rare. I mean, the only uh, presidential election that was where foreign policy was a major issue in, in, in decades really was 2004 after 9-11. And uh, so, and, and the, the, the kind of the fervor for the Iraq war, which actually badly damaged Hillary Clinton's career because it sounded like a good idea to vote for the Iraq war to her then, something I'm sure she regretted later, particularly how it turned out. But the question is, will the various positions Democrat candidates actually uh, on foreign policy play out here, and you have Biden, aided in many ways by the punditocracy in D.C., you know, you're the Chuck Todds of the world, right, uh, being the, st the steady hand who has a lot of foreign policy experience and we can trust, so we'll be safe. So that's being pushed forward. You have Mayor Pete, the one who actually f was, in, was in the Middle East and, you know, and, and is a vet, trying to play off that. And then you have Bernie and Elizabeth, playing the much stronger Andy War credentials, Bernie's being quite pure, and Elizabeth being on that side, but also not, also a little, a, a little more nuanced or mixed, however you want to put it, depending on whether you are a pro-Bernie or pro-Elizabeth on those issues, but clearly on the left side of the spectrum as far as American politics on war and peace. And I tend to think, just like in 2008, when it really helped Barack Obama, that the stronger you are on peace, the better in the Democratic primary, and that the Washington uh, punditrats have, have got it all wrong as to what will play well in a primary. Yeah, I would totally agree. But we're going to wrap this up because I actually want to, before we go to break, um, I do want to point out uh, for folks who live in Congressional District 7, we have talked that there is a very important special election uh, this spring uh, since the really um, insightful and thoughtful Sean Duffy decided to step down. Um, <laughs> I hope people took the sarcasm. <laughs> I'm sorry. No tweets sorry. against Matt about I'm sorry. <laughs> Please, that guy, let's get real, right? And By the way, he exposed himself the real minute world. he started talking a lot on television. But we're having two really important candidate forums. Um, uh, both Trisha Zunker and uh, Lawrence Dale will be at them. And the first one is going to be January 15th. And that's going to be in Rice Lake at the Rice Lake Senior Center. That's right, Rice Lake. We're coming for you. And you uh, Congressional District 7. Right? I did, Robert. And then the second one will be in Wausau. And that's going to be at the Wausau Labor Temple in the main hall. So that's going to be on January 29th, folks. Please get out. Um, we will be surveying our membership about what you think about the race and see if we should get in. But uh, very very important congressional uh, primary uh, and hope you all can get out. But with that, we're going to take a break. When we get back, we're going to continue to talk about the critical importance of elections, but eh, we're going to also look a little bit into the future and the idea that we need to do a better job of really finding and developing folks who are really critical to be uh, the vanguard of the next progressive movement. And so we're going to have Joanna Bouch with us. She is our movement politics director. After this break, we'll see you right here at the Battleground Wisconsin. Welcome back to the Battleground, Wisconsin. Again, we're Citizen Action. You can find us at citizenactionwi.org. We're really excited uh, for our next guest. That is Joanna Botch, and she is the our movement, movement politics director. Oh, yeah, hey, that sounds Matt. beautiful, by the way. Just I love the sound of that title because Joanna and I'm going to ask you to dive in and give the top lines uh, to folks about what you do. But just the whole idea that like we need a movement of people to really change. Uh, a lot of the politics that's happening in this country. But Joanna, tell us more about yourself first, and then 
what you're going to be doing here at Citizen Action. Yeah. Um, so I'm really excited to be on um, the podcast, my debut. This yeah. is really fun. <laughs> Woohoo. Um, but I am a you know lifelong Milwaukeean, uh, Latinx, born and raised in the near south side, um, passionate about my community and seeing us grow and you know, just like you said, we're building a movement. And, you know, we know here at, at Citizen Action that movement means bringing folks in. So the bulk of my work is is working with other folks, right? Like working with other organizations um, to build this power and then working across the great state of Wisconsin and finding other leaders and, you know, figuring out how we can cultivate them and develop it, develop them to, you know, to run for office, to become electeds. And, and also um, work on campaigns, right? Like building up folks that are behind the scenes on campaigns, not just the elected officials. And then, and then once we get these awesome, amazing Wisconsinite leaders elected, continuing to work with them, right? Um, seeing what it looks like on the inside of politics, and you know, inside of the Capitol, inside of City Hall, and you know, um, just building a team and working together and making sure that folks know that we got their back. And yeah. It's really, really exciting that you're you're on board, and you know it, what's so wonderful about you in particular being in this role is that you have so much experience, kind of with candidates, with campaigns, and I think there's so much work to be done, not only to bring people in to volunteer and and build energy and 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 support for candidates, but also with the candidates themselves to build up their confidence to run, to help them make a plan to win. Uh, to to guide them on like the issues and building their coalitions and so that's something that like is so needed and for um, sure, for sure. yeah I mean you know Citizen Action Working Families Party so many other groups I love what you said about bringing people in I mean the only way that we're gonna win is if we like build these coalitions and Matt and I have talked mm. for years now about uh, having having that kind of center on you know the left or whatever you want to call it among like people's organizations and like our movements where other groups are organized and you know whether it's in the presidential race where we see wall street donors who are like organized around their candidates or even locally you know centrist groups you know who who get together regularly and i think for us we're all so often too often like in our silos just like trying to do really hard david versus goliath work on our own and when we come together that's when we like have the ability to to really build some power so really psyched about this and there's like no shortage of work whether it's you said mentioned city hall locally but across the state too and um finding the candidates is like half the battle i feel like for sure definitely and you know i think that wisconsin is finally looking that in the direction that to build this power we need to elect like regular wisconsinites right just regular people and in order to do that in order to uplift that community um we, we have to come together, right? We have to come together as organizations. We have to come together as, you know, leaders in our community and and find these folks and, and encourage them and support them. Like, yeah, you're so right. And that's what I'm really excited about is like finding regular people and letting them know, like, you know, nobody can lead this community better than you. And to put that in folks' heads and like really lift that up inside of them, that's, I'm just really excited for that. Yeah, what's really important, and we've talked a lot on this podcast about our co-ops in the different parts of the state, in a lot of these areas, right, like, um, there's often not enough support for people who maybe think, like, you know, or they're told, you're not from the right area necessarily, or you don't, you know what, you may not have enough of a network amongst yourself with the resources to do X, Y, and Z, 
Um, but these are committed, passionate people who actually have a vision and a life experience <laughs> that could change the world. We need to give them the kind of support, and we're particularly interested in trying to figure that out and how that connects uh, with our co-ops and people who aren't in our co-ops but need to be uh, working with us in this movement and helping invest in their leadership. This is, if you could get your comments or just sort of thoughts on on that as it relates to other parts of Wisconsin, right? Like well, all, can all I jump parts. In quickly? Sorry, I yeah, yeah. Sorry. Just, just to say, we talk. Matt and I talk <laughs> about this all the time, and it's just, you know, what what we often get frustrated with is. Uh, the fact that whether it's Madison or D.C. or whoever, the usual operatives or folks who are doing this work have an idea of who a good candidate or a right candidate is. A small business owner who's from this part of the district totally. or whatever, a right, lawyer. and has resources totally. and can self-fund yeah. and, you know, and it exactly. just excludes so many people. It does, sure. and it's also, and, and the argument is like, well, we can't win if, like, we don't have XYZ kind of candidate, and often that, you know, um, diminishes the prospects of women, very yes, much people yes. of color, working sure. class folks, definitely progressive values too. Oh, you can't win if you run on Badger Care for All or whatever it is. And it's super frustrating. And, you know, not only like do we think it's wrong, like morally we should be have a more representative democracy when it comes to people of color and women. More, I mean, morally we should have a democracy where our candidates are like reflecting the progressive values of the electorate every time they're polled. But like also strategically, like that's Matt and I bang our heads against the wall because we're like, no, you this is how we win. And I think what was so exciting about Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, but not only her, she's just the most shining example, is that she flipped that on its head where she yep. was a Latina millennial bartender. Yeah. And, 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 you know, by the standards of most operatives in Wisconsin, she should never run for state assembly, let alone <laughs> Congress. For and sure. she ended up winning. So. I'm yeah. so excited about yeah, your Yeah, I know, yeah. right? And like we we just have to change that narrative, you know. And I think people have a false idea of what Wisconsin looks like, right? Like rural yes. Wisconsin, they they just they don't yes. know, they don't understand, right? And it's time for us to lift up those progressive voices across the entire state, get more POCs, people of color elected, get more women elected, um and I we definitely can do it. So, if you're listening um and you're like, you know, gosh, I actually think maybe I could do that. You know, maybe not this year, maybe not in 21, but I could see maybe if I had a two-year plan or someone would help me develop a plan. Yeah, 2020 is going to be an exciting year. But we have so much longer to go. It's it's not just this year. It's it's this year and beyond. And so yeah, I want folks to know like they can reach out. Um, that's all I've been doing. You know, I've been with the organization for a month now, and I'm just constantly doing one on ones with leaders here in Milwaukee, um, across the state, with you know our organize our regional organizers, and all the different areas. Um, it's about having these you know preliminary conversations and then seeing where we can go together. Yep. Um, so folks should definitely reach out. Let, let's talk. Let's see what the future of Wisconsin is going to look like. Let's see what you want Wisconsin to look like and figure out how we can make things happen. Yeah, Robert. So obviously we, you know, we had 24 Citizen Action Wisconsin organizing co-op members run. I think it was 23 or 24, Matt, in the last election, uh, in, the, in the general election. So there's a great base to work with, and I know you're still in the process of meeting all of them, Joanna. Uh, and there are a lot of people who aren't yet organizing co-op members of Citizen Action, maybe in the sound, hear the sound of our voice through the internet or through the two radio stations we're on. But it also seems like there may be some people, a lot of people actually, 
who may not be able to run themselves, at least not yet, or maybe they want to get their feet wet in politics, but want to help someone who would run. So are there yeah. uh, places, I, I think you actually cut your teeth that way, working with other candidates, where people could just start working for local candidates who we're working with, because it's not like trying to get into a presidential campaign. You can like be one of the major players if, you, if you're a volunteer and you're really helpful to the candidate, right? Oh, yeah. that's def- I mean, that's definitely how I started. That's how I got my feet wet. Um, you know, organizing, knocking on doors for our local candidates. And, and I don't think people understand like the real power that we have in local politics. Um, and yes, volunteers, you know, volunteer recruitment, campaign managers, all those people like play such an important role. And it's not so like I said earlier, it's not just about cultivating the electeds or potential candidates. Um, it's about cultivating those people in the background, right? Because doing the groundwork and we need, you know, if you want to run for office, you're making a big mistake if you think you can do it alone, right? You, you're making a big mistake if you think you can do it without a campaign manager, without a base of volunteers. Those folks are the ones that are going to push you through and, and we need to find them and lift them up as much as we're lifting up our candidates because they're just as important. And they're all volunteer slots in these local campaigns or state legislative campaigns. It's not like if you volunteer a presidential candidate, it, it's fun, but it's like, here's your walk packet. But in these campaigns, you're like part of the inner circle if you're a major volunteer, right? And you, and you learn about it. So if you're going to run the future, you learn about how this works. So a lot of candidates are volunteers well before they're ever candidates. Oh, yeah, for sure. I think that, that that's how a lot of folks get their feet wet. You know, just to, you know, they want to, you know, dip in a little bit, see what it's like, see what folks are going through, see what the experience is. And then, and then I think that's where they get a lot of their energy to be like, you know what, I can do this too. You know, if you can do it, I can do it, we can do it. Right. We just got to share stories, share experiences. And um, I think that's how we, you know, that's how we get the movement going. So, Joanna, give out your contact info. If somebody is, I need to reach her. <laughs> what, what, who, who do they talk to? Yep. Phone or, and email, whatever, however you think best to get whatever in touch you with prefer. You. Yep. Yeah. So, um, Folks can call me, my cell number, 414-931-1758. I'd love to hear from you or shoot me an email, Joanna, J-O-A-N-N-A-B, at citizenactionwi.org. And with that, we have to say thank you so much for not only coming on, but for investing in this kind of work. We just uh, we think it's absolutely vital. might be some of the most important organizing yeah. that can go on. Yeah. Uh, but thanks for coming on uh, to the Battleground Wisconsin. With yeah. that, we have to wrap up this battleground wisconsin want to thank rebecca lynch for coming back we miss you when you're gone um and it was great to have you back thank you you're absolute treasure to this state <laughs> and it's and to the show so we're thrilled to have you back and of course brian wildridge the producer who makes it happen every week and who as i finish talking will immediately go and get to work on making sure this show happens we'll see you next week here at the battleground wisconsin <laughs>